Welcome to the Post Talk Live podcast, where we host live salon gatherings for curious people around the world. Hosted by me, Susan McTavish Best. Um, today, I am chatting with Gary Hall. He is an athlete. He has a heap of hardware in the form of medals. Uh, he's a, uh, a patient advocate. He's a swimmer. He's a dad. And um, yeah, we'll throw out some questions to him. And please join in if uh, you are watching this live. This will probably also turn into a podcast. So uh, if you are listening to it as a podcast, don't throw in any questions. Um, so Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, this is fun. Um, it's good to meet you here in, in some way, in some form, not in person, but it's meet you here almost in person. Um, you are known for swimming, but I am going to guess that you are probably into other sports as well. What are you doing these days uh, to keep healthy? I had picked up doubles tennis as my activity to maintain health. Uh, gave up competition a long time ago. And the ten Did you compete before in tennis, did you say? Or? I played when I was younger. I, I gave it up when I was 14 and committed myself to the sport of swimming. But every once in a while through the years, I'd pick up a racket and hit socially. And uh, my tennis uh, partners are all in their late 70s and early 80s. Of course, they've been in lockdown. They've been holed up in their apartments, and uh, it's been no activity for me lately. I did sneak out for a surf. Uh, one time through this quarantine, but uh, exercise has been pretty limited to the uh, apartment. Yeah, are, are, the, are the, the folks in their 70s pretty competitive? Are they whipping their ass? Uh, you know, as long as they can hit those lines, they've got me running like a retriever. <laughs> um, you're a parent, I think, right? Your dad? Yes, uh, two kids. Oh, that's, that's great. Um, how can parents right now motivate their kids? To want to go outside and exercise? Um, I, bribery. Okay. <laughs> uh, bribery is the best way. Uh, at least it has been for my uh, kids. Okay. Um, for uh, my daughter, who is uh, into volleyball, um, it, for every hour that she spends outside just kind of bouncing the volleyball around, I'll give her five bucks. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah. And, uh, my son who's more musically inclined and is in, interested in learning how to play the piano, I'm giving him a good, uh, 20, uh, for, uh, an entire song. So oh. uh, these types of challenges, they worked for me as a kid. I didn't start winning any races and swimming until my mom uh, offered me five bucks for every race I won. And how old was that? How old were you then? I was about 13. Ooh. Okay. Um, what's your relationship with nature? You mentioned surfing. You like to swim. Are you do you swim in the ocean or mostly swimming pools? So I uh, I, I won a gold medal um, in the fifty freestyle in two thousand and finished my career in two thousand eight. And through those eight years, I'd say that about sixty percent of my swimming was done in the ocean. Ah, which ocean? Uh, down in the Florida Keys, uh, and I, I was living in South Beach and had a, a, a training place down in uh, Isla Mirada. Yeah. And um, if I wasn't in the pool, I was uh, in the ocean, uh, did a lot of spearfishing, a lot of freediving, and uh, really have always felt that connection with the ocean. Uh, I learned how to swim down in the Bahamas when I was very, very young. 
and have always loved, uh, to me, the most impressive things I've seen done in water um, are, are, are the freedivers from Spanish wells on the Outer Banks of the Bahamas, uh, what they were able to do in terms of spearfishing that I saw growing up. That inspired me and, and connected me with the water in a way that I never would have otherwise. And I guess when you're enjoying um, swimming in the ocean and then you get into a pool, I, I swim a little, but uh, I do a lot of trail running. And if you suddenly run on the flat after climbing up and down the mountains, you're like, yes. <laughs> Resistance training, we call it. Uh, if you're only used to running uphill, you get to flat ground and it seems like uh, you're running downhill. Right, yeah. Um, you're in your 40s and you've clearly nailed physical pursuits, it would appear. Um, what are you doing to keep your mind healthy? Yeah, I've always enjoyed an uh, artistic outlet. And um, I, it's a really strange hobby, but I got into leather work about five years ago. I uh, was hanging out drinking beer in the parking lot of a fourth-generation saddle in the San Inez Valley, which is wine country in Santa Barbara. Right. And uh, I guess I was just uh, hanging out too much, and, and eventually the proprietor said, hey, why don't I just teach you how to do this? And so I signed on to be an apprentice. He had no idea that I was an Olympic swimmer, and I uh, just uh, worked as an apprentice in a saddlery for uh, a few years and kind of learned the trade and was able to incorporate. Uh, I'm a doodler, always uh, the notebooks, uh, corners covered in little drawings, uh, and I transitioned that artwork to a new, more three-dimensional uh, medium, where you're really kind of digging into the leather and creating different layers. It's uh, been a pursuit uh, recently. That, that's very cool. What about uh, like leather jackets? Can you do it on that as well? Uh, no, that's way beyond my skills. I keep it to uh, belts, hat bands, and guitar straps. Oh, okay. Uh <laughs> Wow, that, I, I had no idea what you were going to answer with that. That is a that's a great answer. Um, diet, you're type one diabetic, and that's correct, yeah. Yes, yes. And athletes, um, both require, I think, a huge amount of discipline. Uh, and diet, um, what are you eating these days? Are you cooking for yourself? Yes, it's it, it's a it's a learning curve for me. I've always been a dish man. You know, for a dinner party, yeah, for a dinner party, I do the dishes. Oh, like that's that's my thing, right? Like, because my uh, cooking ability is is very limited, um, and so this has really been uh, an intense um, new area of discovery for me. And uh, some of the results have been um, questionable. What is what's what's the dish that you're most proud of right now? Uh, you know, it's spaghetti. Oh, good. <laughs> Keep it simple. That's what they say. <laughs> um, I, um, but I do. I, I, I do eat healthy. I, I, I'm making a joke of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fortunately, I've been in, in, in company that um, it does appreciate uh, the, the process of cooking, uh, and uh, it's much better at it. So a, a healthy diet, uh, always balanced with vegetables and fresh fruit, and uh, so yeah, I have a delivery service now that drops off a box of uh, fresh produce uh, weekly. I, I have that as well, and I'm so appreciative of, of that these days. It's really great to get something straight from a farm when you live in an urban area. Um, 
You come from a family of swimmers. Two generations or three generations? Uh, gosh, uh, dating back, uh, competitive swimmers to my grandfather. He was a collegiate champion uh, during World War II years in which he served. Uh, came back after the war and won the college championships when they didn't have the Olympics. So it was the fastest meet in the world at the time. And uh, he had six kids. My mother was one of them. She met my father, uh, who was a swimmer, at a swim meet at a swimming pool that my grandfather built. So, yeah, born into the swimming pool. So you were spending a lot of time, yeah, swimming as a kid. Do you remember, did you have, like, uh, armbands as a wee kid? And do you remember them getting uh, taken off? Or were you just sort of thrown straight into the deep end and naturally swim? Uh, I learned how to swim before I could walk. I don't remember it. Um, and was able to play every sport I wanted to growing up, except contact football. I could play flag football, but my parents were uh, against me playing a head collision type uh, football. Uh, but I played a lot of basketball, soccer, baseball, uh, and, and, and uh, track and field, and um, tennis, and so it was pretty good in everything, but it wasn't until I was about 13 or 14 that I really started to commit myself to uh, one sport and specialize. Were you more of a, a, a you ran? Did you say you ran? Were you a long distance runner? Long, long jump and high jump. Long jump and high jump. Okay, wow. Yeah. Um, and so as a family, did you swim together? Did you have like trips off to the local swimming pool? Or how did that? Yeah, I used to swim. Uh, my, my family had a pool in the backyard, and my grandfather sw swam through his entire life. And he would go swimming, and he, uh, I, I'd go swimming with him. Um, and so those are early memories of, of, of swimming. Um, there must be something I think about competing in sports. I've never competed in sports. I'm not speaking from personal experience, but um, that one must like the fear a little bit and appreciate some fear as a competitor, a taste for it, the rush. Um, did you, and, and do, is there anything that you fear that gives you a rush now? Maybe, I don't know, for example, surfing, I know some people might have a little bit of a sense of that. Or? Uh, yes, the thrill of competition. Uh, the nerves make, you, know, you feel like throwing up, but um, it's exhilarating. Um, and, and obviously, even not just the physical excursion uh, at that level uh, creates an endorphin high that is unrivaled by anything I've come across in a lot of years. Um, right now, have you as an adult, kids? Maybe I don't know. <laughs> sorry. I said, how do you fill that hole right now when you said it's unrivaled? Yeah, so uh, surfing, surfing does that for me. I, I, I get that same satisfaction. Snowboarding, I do uh, yeah, quite a bit of snowboarding as well. Have you done any surfing in uh, unusual destinations around the world? Uh, I spent a lot of time in Central and South America. And one time, I don't surf at all, but I like to go stay in surf lodges. And so I went uh, surfing off the west coast of Africa, which I would recommend off Senegal, the Angola. Right. Rumored to be sharky waters there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, no matter how fast you can swim, they swim faster. I mean, it's a little bit like that in Northern California, too. So maybe that's that's the fear and the excitement, the rush. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Did you, uh, so you're competing as, as a kid or as a teenager, you must have had a fairly dedicated family support system. Um, was, was your family life dominated by, by competing? And did you have any siblings? I'm the oldest of six kids, three boys, three girls. Uh, both my parents were competitive swimmers. My uncle, my maternal uncle, was on the 1976 Olympic team with my father. My father competed in three Olympics, uh, was the only swimmer until Michael Phelps to carry the flag for the United States in the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games uh, for Team USA. He held 10 world records, was World Swimmer of the Year twice. Growing up, we were all part of the sport, but my father, uh, fortunately, never tried to coach us. Uh, he was a supportive father. And, um, and so that made all the difference, you know, that we were able to take some ownership and felt like it was uh, really kind of um, our own identity, not someone else's. Yeah, that's great. Um Parents have to put all of their trust into coaches. And um, what, what is the role of parents in that relationship? Because I'm sure we have some parents who are watching and their, their kids do have coaches. Yeah, so a little bit of, of background in how I've become more involved in this space and my interest. I serve currently on the uh, leadership board for the National Youth Sport Health and Safety Institute. And that is under the umbrella of the American College of Sports Medicine, the largest organization of its kind, with everything from orthopedic surgeons down to nutrition, dietitian, chiropractor, that type of range of services, all working with human performance. And um, so we're able to really take a closer look at the data sets now and, and, and determine the best approaches. Uh, a multi-sport approach at a young age is better. We all know about the Tiger Woods and Michael Phelps stories about how they were all in at two or three years old, and uh, they're the anomaly. Um, in a 2012 survey at the London Olympics, uh, over 80% of the athletes in all sports survey played multiple sports through high school um, and didn't specialize until getting into college. And so that is something for parents to keep in mind, particularly the hyper-competitive sort. We all know if I have many friends who admit themselves into that category. Um, and, um, you know, we want the best for our kids. The thrill of sport takes over sometimes. We find ourselves jumping up and down in front of a TV set. Uh, for the green team, sometimes, I don't know, uh, but it is, it, it, it stokes within us uh, something very primal, and it's hard for a parent to control that and, and, and just create that distance and space between their love and support and, and their child's performance. And so that's uh, something that I spend a lot of time uh, talking to youth sport groups about. Um, be a cheerleader, not a coach. Wow, okay, that's, that's a, good, a good tagline. And, and I guess I suppose if doing multi-sports, one is less likely to be physically fatigued and mentally fatigued from just the repetition of having a face down in the water day in and day out and nothing else, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, you know, once you get to that um, uh, level of commitment, it, it, it's, it's all in. It, it, it's just... Um, uh, when I was training for the Olympics, it was between six and eight hours, six days a week. Um, 
the, the point of the Olympic Games, faster, higher, stronger, you're testing human capacity. You know, how far we can push ourselves. And so that becomes the objective every single day in practice. And the kids that go all in at eight years old, um, you know, burn out uh, statistically. Um, for every Michael Phelps that makes it through, there are countless. And up until recently, nobody was paying attention to what the dropout rate of sport was. Um, so kids, some have a more natural inclination toward that competitive nature. It exists in all of us to some degree, but obviously we can see on the playing field among eight-year-olds, some have it more than others, some develop sooner than others. And don't play the long game. That's my point, is if uh, your kid's in the outfield chasing butterflies, that was me. I, you know, I, I did not show any competitive promise at an, as a, an age grouper. Um, you know, sometimes uh, it just develops later. And so, uh, yeah, just, uh, again, um, hey, uh, my father, I, I mentioned how accomplished he was in the sport. He gave me one bit of advice. Uh, of advice. It didn't matter if it was before my rinky-dink uh, soccer competition uh, where I wasn't any good and was lucky to see even a little bit of playing time or it was right before the Olympic Games. His advice was, have fun. That was it. That was all. He was qualified to coach me how to do a better arm recovery, how to do a better hand entry on your freestyle or something like that. And uh, his only advice was always have fun. Mm. Well, reading up about you, it seemed that you did have fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I try. I try to. That's the, the one time I listened to my father. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, competing is expensive. It and, is. Yeah. And, and how do how do young kids and, and like teens uh, and their families manage and can remain motivated? I don't really know anything about the finances of, of competing. So uh, do you have any tips for, for um, families who are not super well off? Or? Yeah, it, 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 it's a story of inequality. Yeah. And uh, it's unfortunate. And fortunately, there are a lot of smart minds uh, really digging in and figuring out ways to address that disparity that exists between the haves and the have-nots. The cost of youth sport, not just in terms of equipment purchases and meat entry fees or whatever, league registration, but also the time of the parents, the back and forth to the practices. If you have two working parents, it's a barrier to entry, and it's unfortunate. And the smart minds, uh, the Aspen Institute um, that I've served all, uh, on in, in a variety of capacity through the years, the uh, director of the Sports and Society Program is a gentleman by the name of Tom Ferry, and he sets up roundtable discussions to address this with both uh, civic leaders and, and municipalities and, and uh, public, private, uh, for-profit, non-for-profit. And uh, they're making great headway in, in how we can open up school playgrounds uh, to play sports at one, once three o'clock, you know, the, the, the buzzer rings. Um, and, and how those uh, schools have, have closed, obviously, due to how do we address the safety and concern, the safety concerns um, of, of the youth and, and making uh, sport a healthy and safe atmosphere that's also accessible to all. Right. 
Um, before COVID and, and but still on the same topic, are there any other countries that are doing a really good job in terms of um, providing access uh, for youth to, to sports? Yeah, you know, there's been a, a few um, attempts to bring world leaders together. Um, and uh, they brought in the ministers of sport from all the countries. And what was a stark realization for me in attendance there was that the United States is one of only a few countries in the world that really doesn't have like a minister of sport uh, or an equivalent to somebody that oversees safety, sport development, and, 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 it's, uh, and so a lot of places, Argentina is an example, um, how they utilize park space and, and have programming in these that are free for participants, um, how we create incentives to exercise, uh, to cut into the overwhelming costs of obesity and type two diabetes. This is not just, a, this is a quality of life measurement for most governments out there. And so it has been inspiring to piecemeal uh, these great ideas from around the, the world and, and, and um, create an, 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 uh, you know, some ideas about how we can do a better job here. Maybe that's a boost for you in the future. Create the, <laughs> create the Minister of, of Sports in Washington. Um, in 1999, you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which must have been a humbling experience for someone who relied so much on one's body, publicly, physically, brashly. Um, how did you cope? I read that you took off to Costa Rica for a couple of months, but for those who have maybe just been diagnosed, um, how did you cope? So it was, uh, we all have in life before and after moments. This was definitely one of those. Uh, it changed my life. Little, right, for being diagnosed with, 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 I guess, maybe called juvenile diabetes? Yeah, so what was once called juvenile diabetes is type 1 diabetes. That is an autoimmune disease, so not related to too much Halloween candy or lifestyle style <laughs> stuff. Uh, type 2 is more uh, inefficiency of processing the insulin. Uh, and you see that in, in overweight uh, and, and sedentary populations. And so um, there's definitely two, uh, no family history of either type 1 or type 2 diabetes in my uh, family. And this is a trend across the board for all autoimmune diseases. There's a huge uptick in all autoimmune diseases. Uh, we haven't made that connection as to what it is environmentally that is triggering this response that's in certain people's DNA. And up until 1978, houses were built with lead pipes. That's amazing to me. Now, you know, we know that lead is bad for you. Uh, everybody was probably ingesting trans fat and not knowing about it or thinking about it. And then one day it's eliminated, just eradicated from every menu and every restaurant everywhere. And so I think that there's something out there and we can conspiracy theory this thing, you know, whether it's a pesticide or a preservative or some food coloring or what. Uh, the point is we don't know. 
Uh, but we are seeing this uptick in autoimmune. I was one of the many unfortunate in that group. And um, it was a tough diagnosis. Uh, definitely, it gives you a sense of mortality when you um, come across something like that. I had dedicated my entire life uh, to training my body, to just being in a peak physical condition. And my body was failing me, right. particularly my pancreas. I still hold a little bit of a grudge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for, for those who have been newly diagnosed as, as diabetics, um, what are three things that they, they should do? It, it, it's usually panic that will pass. Accept that, that, that grief is going to be part of this acceptance process. And um, don't freak out. I, I freaked out. You mentioned I went to Costa Rica. I hid out in the mountains uh, with howler monkeys for a long time before finally after about a month and a half, uh, deciding that I would come back and, and try to deal with this situation in a more mature way than the monkeys. Um, but uh, it, it was a, a precarious uh, time, and there were definitely uh, mental health uh, instability, and a lot of families just beat their head against the wall, thinking you know, what they could have done to have prevented something like this from happening. And I see the anguish post-diagnosis in so many families and the struggle and wrapping their head around and the fear that their son or their daughter is going to live a compromised life and have horrible complications. There's so many to list if uh, you don't manage this disease properly. So I have two hats that I have to wear in diabetes advocacy. One is among families of newly diagnosed patients. And that message to them is, listen, when I was diagnosed, there were two doctors that told me, you can't go to the Olympic Games. It's impossible. It's never been done before. You should worry about the use of your kidneys. Um, and and um, I was able to uh, change that perception among diabetes nurse educators uh, in, in 2000 when a year and a half after my diagnosis, I was able to go back, qualify for an Olympic team, become the first person with type 1 diabetes to do that, and then become the first person with type 1 diabetes to win a medal at the Olympic Games. And it was a goal. And so um, it, it empowered nurse educators to help alleviate that, that impact, that very, very scary diagnosis um, and, and to me, that is the greatest victory of, of my career that made all the stupid laps back and forth at 5.30 in the morning worth it um, to make that diagnosis a little less scary for kids and adults. Who did you lean on to um, understand your, your body's chemistry more because you're suddenly thrown into having to learn an awful lot? Um, yeah. I cannot give enough credit to my endocrinologist, Dr. Ann Peters. She was at the USC Tech School of Medicine. I could not have done this without her. Wow. It was a crash course. And when I say crash, anybody who has diabetes knows that there's a lot of, a lot of hypoglycemic, uh, low blood sugar crashes. Right. And uh, there was a trial and error process. And I don't know that I could have had that constrained learning curve of a year and a half between diagnosis and the Olympic Games, couldn't have navigated that without her and her team, nutritionists and dietitians, um, and uh, the diabetes nurse educators there on staff. Um, it was, uh, I, I cannot give her enough credit. 
Um, Jay Handy, this is covering up my face, I need to sit up. Um, Jay, whom actually I think I met around, oh, this is fun, and <laughs> like, over there. Um, and uh, it's a big question he has. I met him at about 1999 on a century bike ride for JDRF in Death Valley. It was extremely hot. Um, and he biked up next to me and he was the coach for JDRF. Hi, Gary. Big fan for years and can appreciate the issues of managing diabetes as an athlete. What do you see as the greatest challenges and what CGM and pump do you use if you're using a pump? Thank you, Jay. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. So, you know, we are really lucky. We are really lucky. When, when the doctors told me can't be done, can't compete at the highest level with the world's best athletes, uh, that was probably true uh, it, 10 years previously. But there had been advances in the insulins that were available. Uh, there were advances in the uh, medical devices, like the CGM for anybody who doesn't have diabetes is a continuous glucose monitoring device. And it spits out a blood sugar reading every minute or so, so that you're able to trend and see if your blood sugar is rising or lowering. Um, I didn't have that tool available to me after my diagnosis and when I qualified for the Olympic Games. I wish I did. I used a Dextrom G6, and that I've seen incredible benefits from. Um, there also, uh, but around my diagnosis, this was right before the 2000 Olympics, uh, the first major insulin pumps were starting to hit the market. And there were zealots, people that were just, this is a life changer, this is the greatest thing, it's no big deal, diabetes is no big deal. And I, that was not my experience. Uh, in fact, there was nothing in medical textbooks really that was relevant on how to manage uh, diabetes and sport and physical activity. Um, and so I was finding that a lot of the information that I was receiving from these pumpers, as they called themselves at the time, was totally inaccurate. You just unplug your pump while you were exercising. Uh, bad advice. Uh, and it got a lot of people into a lot of serious trouble. Um, so I went on and off a variety of, I think, almost all the pumps that are available. And I didn't see better results than aggressive multi-daily injection. Um, so I just uh, used the multi-daily injection. Um, also, having devices attached to your body in a sport where you're shaving your arm hair because it might make a hundredth of a second difference. Um, even though it seems pretty slim by medical device standards, um, it, it wasn't something that I could have dangling from me uh, while I was uh, training and competing. Yeah. Um, insulin is awfully expensive in America. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> grumble, grumble. Uh, this is a soapbox platform for me. Uh, don't get me started on this one. I, I, I really, uh, yes, I, I, I went to uh, Washington, D.C. for the State of the Union address. Okay. Um, and uh, met with a bunch of senators and Congress. Okay. Um, so maybe you don't know, you haven't seen the news of just how uh, expensive insulin is, perhaps in comparison to, say, Canada. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. So, um, yeah, insulin has been one of those drugs, like the EpiPen, uh, that has just seen these uh, unaccountable price hikes for a lot of years. Um, and all, there's three major insulin companies uh, around the world. 
they have, if you look at their price hikes uh, in lockstep and, and, and how that's happened over the last 10, 15 years. When I was diagnosed, my copay was $5 for a $50 vial of insulin that I would pay $50 for if I didn't have insurance. That same vial of insulin is in the mid-300s now, and it's a $75 copay. So it's just unreasonable. It's the exact same medication that I uh, from 1999, so an innovation uh, change to it. And it's unfortunate. Uh, the patient has been exploited uh, and has shouldered this overwhelming cost. And in the grassroots advocacy work that I do, I come across countless stories about a father uh, breaking down into tears in front of me and telling me how he has to skip his $5 Subway sandwich every other day at lunch so that he can afford his daughter's insulin. And that's a tragedy. This is a first world country. All these other countries have access to drugs at a fairer price. The health system isn't broken and it isn't fixed. It isn't like an on-off switch. It's somewhere in the middle. We have to figure out how to improve it. And the cost of prescription medicines is, is a big uh, focal point for me. Uh, it should be a big focal point in an election year. Uh, people living with chronic conditions. Uh, we're the majority probably across the United States, really. And so uh, this uh, is something that we should all care about. It affects, uh, if not ourselves directly, then a, a loved one. When you're speaking of the father skipping out in his $5 Subway sandwich, I mean, I think a lot of diabetics are skipping out on their insulin because yes. it's yes. about a quarter of them, uh, yeah. which is such a actually ends up being a drag on the healthcare system anyway, because you end up having other things happening in your body, right? If you don't take care of it. They'll end up in the emergency room. They'll end up with complications that are so much more costly. Uh, so it, it's a losing proposition and something really needs to be done soon to, uh, to fix this. So Colorado, did they put a cap on the price of insulin there? Are there any other states that are doing that? I know, I think you're based in California. Um, yeah, there are uh, some advocates out there that have devoted themselves uh, tirelessly to improving the situation and are finally getting some traction, especially over this last year, year and a half, uh, pharma bros and all the stories about these ridiculous price increases in, in pharmaceutical industry. It is starting to get our elected officials to pay attention, and that's when the, dry, uh, the, the change occurs. Um, it's a slow moving ship at sea, giant sea freighter turning at sea, or something like that. This is an overnight change, but um, you know, finally, we're, we're starting to at least hear the squeaky wheel that needs to be oiled. Hopefully, it doesn't get lost in the news this year with uh, COVID and, and what have you, but. Um it is an election. It is an election year. Uh, let's see what else. I think maybe that is it. Ooh, we've got some questions. What was the pinnacle of your Olympic career? Well, winning a gold medal at individual events is the obvious answer. Right? So I, that, I, I mean, I, I have to say it's, it's a neat experience when you get to step up on this podium. They put a gold medal around your neck. 
and they play the national anthem and you've represented your country well. That's a, a very proud uh, moment that I found incredibly humbling, incredibly humbling, um, life-changing in, in, in that way. Um, this is a goal uh, that you have worked toward tirelessly. Uh, you'll hear athletes talk about sacrifice. Um, most people that haven't been through it have no idea the sacrifices that these athletes make. Not just in the pool, like, oh, my biceps are burning. That type of sacrifice. This is like yeah, um, juggling, compromising schoolwork, um, postponing entry into the workforce that becomes a huge disadvantage. So a lot of these athletes that have taken up this commitment have no idea what those sacrifices are until sometimes later in life and in, in, in that situation. I don't care how many medals. Career-wise, it's then you, you're a great athlete, but you can't still be necessarily competing at age 52, right? How are you going to make money, that sort of thing? You know it's a finite window, and you want to take advantage of this, especially if you have that ability and you're kind of uh, jockeying for that, that glory. Um, but, you know, at some point you do... Uh, have to enter the workforce. You know that's coming. And uh, I don't care how many medals you won. You, I, I retired in 2008, and uh, my resume said swimmer. So, it, you know, a lot of these athletes that are talking about sacrifice, they're also talking about you know, just uh, 16 to 20-some years to be able to get to that podium of every a commitment every single day. Um and um, and so, yeah, to, to have all of that hard work, all of that sacrifice pay off um, and be able to realize that dream, um, I, it does. There's, and the medal ceremony is different in different sports. Um, in track and field, I think they have, you compete one night and then they do the awards presentation for that event the following night at the track and field event. Okay. But in swimming, the medal ceremony is right after, 20 minutes after the race is over. And so you're still on this adrenaline high from the competition. I mean, just seeing spots uh, when they walk you out there and it, the, it, the euphoric sensation is just, I, I've never experienced anything like that. Did you, have you ever been to the Winter Olympics? I did go to the Winter Olympics uh, when they were up in Vancouver. Okay. Um, what have you got that you're looking forward to this week? This week? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to drive up to the Bay Area and uh, stay with some uh, uh, family up there. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't gotten out of the apartment much. Uh, you know, with the compromised immune system, I'm trying to do the right thing, try to shelter. Right, diabetics, compromising system. Well, that will be a wonderful drive with um, hmm, lots of, if you're driving, lots of wildflowers on the way. I had to make that drive recently myself. Yeah, no traffic. You know, the silver linings. So you got to look for the silver linings. In this thing. What traffic do you expect there's going to be, actually, right now? <laughs> um, but, yeah, you'll get over grapevine pretty quickly. But the poppies along there were absolutely stunning as you come down into the valley. So that is something that's looking forward to. I'm looking forward to that. 
Yeah, well, thank you so much for, um, for joining us. Yeah, yeah thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, thanks. Okay, bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Post Hoc Digital Salon with Susan McTavish Best. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a great review. It really does make a difference. If you don't already, please make sure to follow us on social media. That's at McTavish Best on both Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for attending our digital salon.